Well, Ronald, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm glad you didn't lead singing last Sunday because we uh, had just started a uh, we just started the first, studying First Corinthians in the high school class. And uh, one of the things about First Corinthians is Paul is writing to stress unity because they were divided on so many different things at the church at Corinth. And so we'd gone through in our introduction listing all the things that divided the church at Corinth. And, and one of the things that divided them was that they had chaos in their worship service. And so I, I started off kind of by talking to the kids and I say, you know, let's face it, we're, we're pretty ritualistic. We're pretty traditionalistic. I said, we pretty much know exactly what's going to happen when we go upstairs for worship. And so I said, what's going to happen first? We're going to have the announcements. That's right. What's going to happen next? We're going to have two songs. Then what's going to happen? We're going to have communion. Then what's going to happen? We're going to have another song. No, we had prayer. Prayer. Two songs of prayer. Woo! I know. Some of you were freaking out, weren't you? Yep. Two songs, a prayer, then a song, then communion, then a song, then the sermon, then the invitation song, then the closing song, and the closing prayer. And you messed it all up today. We had the announcements, check, one song, and a prayer. And then two songs and communion. What is up with that? We're going to have to get you the bylaws. But you know, I was talking to, recently I was having a conversation with somebody who had not grown up in our fellowship. And we were talking about little things like, like traditions and, and, and really words and the way that we use words and the way that our fellowship does or does not use certain words. And, and it is kind of interesting. Most of us would never call the room in which we are right now the sanctuary. We call it the auditorium. That's just the way I grew up. We generally do not talk about uh, witnessing. I don't know why that is. But it's not been something that a word, testimony and witnessing, words that really are not, have not been a part of, of my growing up in the church of Christ, my growing up in our fellowship. And, and yet, it's extremely important. In Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus was about to go into heaven. He had died. He'd been crucified. He'd been put in the tomb on the third day. He'd been raised. And for about 40 days, he'd kind of been going you know, and, and showing himself to the disciples and different things. And now this was it. This was the time in which Jesus was going to ascend into heaven for the final time until he comes back again. 
And this is the last opportunity that he is going to have face to face, one on one with his disciples, with his apostles. And he wants to leave them some instructions. And it must have been a little discouraging because even at this moment, as he was about to leave, the apostles themselves were still a little confused. And they asked him the question in verse 6, now are you going to set up your kingdom? Now are you going to do this? And Jesus said, don't worry about that. Times and places, don't worry about that. He says, this is your message. These are your orders. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to all the other parts of the world. The most stirring things that I've ever seen in my life is the changing of the guard at the tombs of the unknown at Arlington Cemetery. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been there and you go to Washington, you need to go. It is a very moving experience. You have this one guard who walks this particular path up and back, 21 steps, waiting 21 seconds, going back 21 more steps. And then every hour or every half hour, depending on what time of the year it is, there is a changing of those guards. And it is a very solemn occasion. You can hear a pin drop. And as the two guards who are fixing to swap out positions face each other, the old guard who is being relieved says to the new guard, Post, meaning stand your post, orders remain unchanged. It is 2,000 years later since Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. And those orders have not changed. You and I are called to be witnesses For Christ. That ought to mean something to us. That ought to stir within us a desire to to go out and to do what God would have us to do. To be those witnesses to the world around us. You see, because for three years, Jesus had walked amongst the people. Jesus had been his own witness. Jesus had been his own testimony. Now, kind of like on a, on a trial basis, he had sent the apostles out at some point and they had come back. But now Jesus was leaving. He was ascending to the Father. He would no longer be his own witness. He would no longer, we would no longer have his own testimony except through the word. But if this movement was to grow, If the gospel message was to ring out as we sung about, it was going to have to be from the witnesses that Jesus left behind. And I do not believe for a minute that that call to witness was just for them. Because how else is the word going to get out now? How else is the world going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ if not for his followers to go out into the world 
and witness to the people just as Jesus called the disciples to do. Well, I wanted us this morning to look at a few things, principles of witnessing. You want some witnessing principles? Uh, We got a few. First of all, witnessing implies experiencing. My guess is that somewhere in the United States last night, a homicide was committed. Think I can probably bank on that? I'm guessing somewhere in the United States last night, a homicide was committed. They may find the suspect and they may put him on trial. But you know who will not be called as a witness? Me. I will not be called as a witness in that trial. Why? I didn't see nothing. I didn't witness anything. I have no testimony that would be relevant to that case. Witnessing implies that you experience something. If you are a witness to a crime, you saw something. If you are a witness to an accident, you saw something. You you experienced that. And that makes what you have to say relevant. There can be unreliable witnesses. People who didn't really see much are unsure. But what about our witness? What about our testimony? What about your testimony? What have you experienced in your relationship with God that is going to make you a credible witness. John said in John chapter one and verse 14, you remember that verse, we, I, I like the first part of it. I kind of gloss over the second part of it a lot of times. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. This is up in the first few verses. The word was God and verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, a lot of times I stop right there. Shame on me. John goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only sent from God. Second Peter chapter two and verse 16, Peter says, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Does that only apply to John and Peter? Have we not seen the glory of God in our lives? Are we not to be eyewitnesses of the majesty of God in our lives? Years ago when I would teach the high school and we would be doing the life of Christ, I would entitle that class, that, that, that class as we went through it, we have seen his glory. That was the name of the class. And every Sunday morning when the kids would come into class, I'd give them a little piece of paper. And it would say on it, this week I have seen God's glory by. And I'd have them write down. And then I'd have them share with the class. And then we would, on the bulletin board in the room, we would would staple them up there. And by the end of, I think it was three quarters, by the end of three quarters, you know, there were a whole bunch of things stapled on that room. And it was interesting. How the answers evolved and matured. The first week when I just kind of threw it at them. Okay, write down how you've seen God's glory this week. Uh, It rained. 
uh, I passed my English test. You know, very kind of simple, and I don't want to, you know, rain is a great way to see God's glory. I'm not going to, I'm not. But as we went along, And they began to focus and they began to really kind of look around and see God's glory in things that they would have never seen God's glory in before. We are eyewitnesses because of our experiences with God. What are our experiences? Sometimes perhaps our witnesses diminish because we have no personal conviction to what we're witnessing to. You know... I'm trying to think of a, you know, you asked me about a particular restaurant. And like the commercials that are on TV now, I say, you know what? It was okay. What do you make of that? He wasn't really thrilled about that. You know, he, he didn't really, the experience really didn't, you know, do anything for him. And you know me, most of you know me. If it comes to food, I'm going to tell you if I like it. And so you ask me about this other restaurant, I say, boy, that was the best chicken fried steak I ever had. It was this big. And, you know, mashed potatoes and, and, and green beans. I'll eat green beans. You know, it was just fried, just right. It wasn't that pressed meat stuff. It was real. It was really good. It was the best. And the price, whoo, you can't beat the price. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, he liked that. That experience was positive. And maybe sometimes our witness, our testimony for God is diminished because we just don't see in our own lives feel in our own hearts what God has really done for us. There's nothing that we have truly experienced that we are willing to, to, to be so bold about sharing. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us, Be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now this is how I know That when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, he was not just talking about those disciples. Because Peter comes along and he's talking to the people. All y'all. I'm sure that's exactly how he said it in Greek. All y'all. All of us need to be ready at any moment to give an answer for the reason of the hope that we have. All of us need to be ready to be witnesses for the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. This verse, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, implies that we have a hope, first of all. Be ready always to give an answer to anyone asked of the reason of the hope that you have. Do you have hope this morning? Amen, brothers, as Mark would say. I hope that you have hope. If you are here this morning and you have no hope in Jesus Christ, you're miserable. You're miserable. Paul said, if in this life only we have hope, we are the most miserable of all people. 
That verse implies that we have hope. That we understand that hope. That we know where that hope comes from. It also implies that others see our hope. Notice it said, be ready always to give an answer to anyone that asks you the reason of the hope that you have. Notice he did not say, go tell somebody about your hope. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. But in this particular verse... Peter is implying that other people are going to see the hope that you have. By the way that we live our lives, by the joy we have, by the attitudes that we have, by by how we treat people, all these different things, that the people are going to understand and know that we have hope. Now, they may not understand that's what it is, mind you. They may just see something different. They may just see us acting in a way that the world doesn't act. But they're going to notice that there's something different. And they're going to want us to explain that to them. It implies that we have a reason for our hope. You know, hope without reason. Hope without a foundation is kind of useless, isn't it? I hope somebody's going to... Send me a check for $5 million next week. Well, there's no reason for me to have that hope, is there? There's no reason whatsoever. Now, anybody out here would like, it's 477 County Road 2101, okay? Or you can just drop it off here at the church building. But don't give it to Janice. Just, yeah, there's no reason for me to have that hope. And if we just tell people, well, I have, I have hope. How come? Uh, uh, well, I don't know. Peter is not saying that we all have to have doctors in theology degrees. That we all have to be able to understand Greek and Hebrew and parse the tenses in the original language and this and that. That we have to explain into detail so that everybody can understand the Trinity, you know, or the Godhead or he, no, he's not, he's not saying that we have to just be able to tell people why you have hope. I have hope because Jesus Christ has saved me. I have hope because God's son died on the cross to take away my sins. I have hope because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and he's promised to come back and take me with him. That's why I have hope. And so we got to have that reason and we explain that reason. Testimony, like I said, is another word that we don't use as much. It's implied in the act of being a witness. That's what a witness does, right? Is give testimony. We ought to have a testimony of what God has done for us. Why we believe in God. Why we act as we act. Why we have hope. Why we persevere in the midst of trials. We are not expected to know or explain everything. I love the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. The blind man's kind of minding his own business. And Jesus comes along And heals him. Now, 
you would think that that has got to be the greatest day in that man's life, right? Uh, rejoicing and I can, I can see. It turned out to be the worst day of his life. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they just come at him and come at him and come at him because they just cannot come to grips with the fact that Jesus healed this man. And then when it was, you know, they couldn't deny that it was Jesus. Well, then what power did he use? Did he use the power of Beelzebub? Did he use the power of Satan? And they're just hammering this man and hammering this man. They hammered his parents and his parents washed their hands up and said, you ask him. And finally, the man said, look, look, enough of this. I don't know much anything. But this one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Now, you can go arguing all you want to about everything else. You can go, uh, but, uh, you know, this I know. When I woke up this morning, I was blind. When I go to bed tonight, I'll be seeing. We may not be able to understand or explain a whole bunch of theology and religious questions. But we ought to be able to testify about what Jesus has done for us. The disciples were bold because of their experiences with Jesus. Our confidence and our courage comes from our personal experience with him as well. Second principle of witnessing is that witnessing begins at home. Notice in chapter 8, or verse 8 of chapter 1, notice the geographical progression that Jesus talks about. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, into Samaria, and in all the other parts of the world. What did Jesus say? You're going to begin at home. You're going to begin in Jerusalem. And then we're going to move out. Witnessing begins at home. First of all, it begins literally in our homes. We witness first to our families, as parents to our children, to those around us, husbands and wives perhaps to each other. But our first field of witnessing is in our home. And beyond that, it's in our local locale. That was redundant. I understand that. But anyway, where we're, where we're at is where we start witnessing. A little later on, it's going to be decided by the church in Antioch that we need to witness further. We need to go beyond here. And you know what? They selected Barnabas and Saul. Not everybody. They didn't tell everybody in the church at Antioch, we're going to lock the doors and we're all going on a mission trip. Now we're going to sit all in Barnabas. Rest of us are going to stay here. And we're going to witness to the people around us. We're going to witness to the people that we have an association with. You've heard, you know, you've heard me use this analogy before, but the demon possessed man, remember him? 
You know, he's up in the hills and he's naked and he's running through the tombs and he's cutting himself and all this stuff and they don't know what to do. And, and finally Jesus comes along and casts the demons out into the swine and they go down the cliff. And the people from the city come out and they see the man and they're like, whoa, Jesus, go away. <laughs> this is freaking us out. And as Jesus is getting ready to leave, the demon, the once demon possessed man comes to Jesus and says, let me go with you. Let me go with you. Last Sunday night, we looked at those verses where Jesus called the first disciples. And up to this point in the Gospels, that's all that Jesus had been doing. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Drop your nets. Leave your tax table. Whatever. Come and follow me. And the demon-possessed man says, Jesus, I want to come and follow you. And Jesus said, no. What? No. You stay here and you witness to the people who know you. If I take you off somewhere and I tell them that I had cast, you had a, a thousand demons in you or whatever, and I cast them out and you used to be in the hills and naked and cutting yourself and all of that. If I take you somewhere else and tell them, they're not going to believe it. They're, they're going to be skeptical. But these people know. These people saw. These people see the dramatic change in your life. And you will be a greater witness to them than you will out there. Ben just got back from Ghana. Go to Brazil. Others of you have been to other mission places. And that's important. Jesus did say, take the message, preach the gospel to all the world. To every creature. And it's important that we go to those places. But we cannot go to those places and neglect our home. Neglect the people around us. Neglect our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers. And the people at school and, and all these different places. We cannot neglect that. Witnessing begins at home. Oswald Smith, a Canadian preacher, said, The light that shines the farthest shines nearest the home. And I think that that's true. Thirdly, witnessing is more than just telling. There is no doubt that witnessing means telling others about Jesus. First Peter chapter 3, 15, be ready to give an answer. The Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 are preaching. Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 17 says, you know, we need to have those who will preach the word. Faith comes by hearing, he says. And then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, as the persecution in Jerusalem came strong upon the church, it says that they were scattered. The believers were scattered. And everywhere they went, they went preaching the word. And so the ability to express our faith and hope is important, but it may not be the most important. Maybe the most important part of our witness is the testimony 
of our lives? Are we living consistent Christian lives as testimony to the world around? Not perfect, not perfect, but consistent. You know, whether it's law and order or whatever the other, you know, uh, legal crime shows are, you know, they, they, they get the witness up there and then they start trying to badger the witness, right? And they start asking him questions because they want to impeach his testimony. They want to show that he's lied over here, so he's lying over here. He's, you know, and, and we do not want to be living lives so that our testimony can be impeached. We don't ever want to live our lives where people question the reliability of what we're saying. People can see through our hypocrisy and we can crow at the top of our lungs that we believe in Jesus and then we live our lives in a way that is so contrary to it that not only does it not do any good, but it may actually do more harm. Because it will turn people off. Uh, You know, I'm sorry, 33 years. I just don't know any new stories. But several, several years ago, when uh, we were at the the football game in Dangerfield, and we used to sit, our seats used to be right under the press box. And we're we're up there and we're, we're sitting there and there's people in front of us. And the people in front of us are bemoaning and crying over the fact that we no longer have prayer in school. Isn't it just awful? Isn't it horrible? They've taken prayer out of school. They've taken, and it just and for you know, fifteen minutes before the football game, that's what it was all about, all about, all about. And then the whistle blew. And the language and the attitude that came from those people. I'm like, and I'm not perfect, not perfect. But I'm like, do you not see the disconnect? We're griping and complaining because we don't have prayer in school, but we're cussing at the refs and the players and and everybody else. That doesn't make any sense. There are things in my life that I'm afraid if people look, they're liable to see as well. But we want to make sure that our lives, our actions, our speech, how we treat people is in line with what we profess verbally. It's just as important, if not more important. If you treat others poorly, if you cheat and lie, your testimony will be impeached and you'll be regarded as an unreliable witness. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice it doesn't say one word about saying anything in that verse. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father in heaven. Peter said to wives with unbelieving husbands that they might be converted by their attitude and their lifestyle. Not necessarily words. Imagine if the demon-possessed man continued to howl and rant and rave. What kind of a testimony would that have been about Jesus? None. 
sign at a gas station I saw once said, a clean engine always delivers power. And our lives lived as God would want us to will always deliver power. Being a witness for Christ is not an option for us. It's a responsibility. And we should never be a hostile witness. We should never have to be subpoenaed in order to testify about God. It's the order that remains unchanged. At the tomb of the unknown soldier, as the outgoing guard says to the incoming guard, orders remain unchanged. The incoming guard replied, orders acknowledged. Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in all the world. That was for them and their time, but the message, the order remains unchanged because we are to be witnesses and give testimony to what God has done in our lives so that others may have the hope that we have. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.